think it's so um, exciting in, in one way to see that um, there are women in leadership roles who are really shining right now. And those are not necessarily the roles that tend to shine that often. I really think that there's a lot of, you know, positive stuff around role models and representation. Um, there's tons of research, again, that shows that when women see themselves reflected, women and girls see themselves reflected in leadership roles, they feel that they can do it too. I, you have to see it to believe it and to be it, right? What is interesting too is that there's, um, you know, a stereotyping busting that's happening right now because women are in leadership when it comes to STEM, um, science, technology, engineering, math. We're seeing women really, um, you know, take a lead on that and that feels great. We don't often see that and the women who are in these roles tend to be hidden. So it's really good to see that and recognize that that's going to have a really positive impact on not just girls, but on everybody to be seeing women in leadership roles helps, helps all genders. The scene. In case you haven't noticed, women have been leading the charge against COVID-19. Luckily, the female leadership during COVID has been televised and we hope is sinking in. From the front lines to the war rooms, women are making their mark in what's the largest global fight in a generation. Here's a short list of those in the headlines. Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, where there have been less than 30 COVID deaths. Rihanna, who's donated over $2 million to help domestic violence victims in lockdown. Dr. Teresa Tam, Canada's Chief Public Health Officer. Finland's Sanna Marin, the youngest state leader in the world who rolled out nationwide antibody testing. The list, we're proud to say, goes on and on and on. Good morning. Good day. Or good evening. And welcome to 54 Lights. My name is Kandwani Mwande, and today's episode is Seeing the Unseen. My guest for today is Andrea Gunrat. Now, to be completely transparent, Andrea is not of African heritage. Well, at least not recently. With that said, she does reflect the very essence of this show. Remember that 54 Lights is dedicated to celebrating people of African descent, those doing amazing things while in the continent or as part of the sprawling diaspora. In the end, we're unearthing stories of people typically on the margins, people whose Western profile makes them predisposed to be on the back benches. And it is this which makes Andrea's story and perspective a perfect fit. For context, Andrea is the Vice President of Public Engagement for the Canadian Women's Foundation. She's a writer, having authored two books, and is a social change crusader. Her work is consumed by representing the underrepresented. Whether through her writing or through her advocacy for women and girls at the Canadian Foundation, at the Canadian Women's Foundation, sorry, Andrea speaks for people who've lived life unseen. 
She's an advocate for the marginalized. Her voice and message is particularly important during this time. Now, the views that she unpacks over today's show will help you make sense of the true impact of the coronavirus. Our discussion speaks vividly about how this pandemic is disproportionately affecting certain groups in our society and how this may be unexpectedly unfolding in your own home. We'll continue by discovering underlying causes of inequality, insights into Canadian communities, and we do all that with some pretty infectious laughter along the way. Um, All things that you'll enjoy over the next few minutes. Now, to summarize, I'm interviewing Andrea because the premise of the show, our foundational mission, if you will, demands it. I'm interviewing Andrea because the scope of her work demands it. I'm interviewing Andrea because, like many of my guests, her intelligence, presence, and poignancy demand it. What follows is a two-part interview pre and post COVID. Both are telling. Both are worth sharing. Let's learn something new. And now, part one of Seeing the Unseen, featuring Andrea Gunraj. Not bad, not bad. Trying to uh, survive this uh, isolation, which is driving, yeah. I think, everybody a little bit stir crazy and nuts. Well, thank you so much for having me back on on the show. And I have to say that me personally, I'm doing really well, um, and I can't complain. But I think that everybody's feeling the strain. So I'm so glad that you want to talk about just um, the impacts of this virus and what it means for us given that the world has changed since you and I have sat down, mm-hmm. um, it was really important to get a check-in. So, you know, I have a couple of questions for you, but maybe the first one is, is that there is this sort of um, um, building narrative that um, this coronavirus is maybe the first equal opportunity situation that the world is faced with, that whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter because everybody is equally susceptible to this um, this disease, if you will. And I know there's some slivers of truth in that, but, but can you maybe elaborate on why that might be misinformed or do you think it is informed? As you said, there is a sliver of truth to the idea that, um, you know, a virus is a virus and it impacts people. Um, if you're a human, it's going to impact you in a particular way. So none of us can take for granted that we have to do what we have to do to stay safe. And we have to um, respect that this dynamic is something that we're not used to. Um, But I think, uh, yeah, you've nailed it in terms of there, there isn't a great equalizer about us. And actually what is, what is so clear in this uh, pandemic situation is that the old discriminations and power differences between people are still um, loud and clear are still operating here. And I think even I'm I'm very mindful nowadays. I'm working from at home, like my colleagues at the Canadian Women's Foundation, and um, that alone is even a a difference. 
Um, there's only about 25 to 30% of us, I'm told, that work in office jobs and have the, the connectivity and the, the access to digital tools to be able to do this and have the kinds of jobs that allow this. Um, and I think about who's more likely to be in that situation. Um, every indication is that it's women and that it's folks who are racialized, um, who are immigrants, newcomers. Um, so I feel like the same old lines are being drawn. And we can speak about this in so, so many ways. It's, it's global as well as national. Um, we see folks talking about how, you know, even the ability to do distancing and to wash your hands, that all relies on space, that relies on access to water. Um, so yeah, I think uh, this idea of a great equalizer has been really challenged. Um, and at the same time that we do all feel it, and that is something that's really important for us to recognize. If we all feel it, then we all recognize that it can, it can harm us um, and we have to be mindful of it. We have to recognize that there's different levels of vulnerability and impacts and therefore different levels of infection rates and different levels of access to the health supports to be able to um, recover and have a chance of getting healthy again. How is this, this disease affecting women? Well, um, one of the things that uh, we've been really talking a lot about right now is the fact that this pandemic is gendered um, and it goes beyond just the epidemiology reality. So the you know infection rates and the severity of the illness and the biology, there's, there's that research happening how now it's developing research about how different genders are impacted. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have um, this idea that there's a gendered experience of the coronavirus and the um, kind of changes that have come with that. And they are, of course, grounded in the gender inequities and inequalities that are really common um, in Canada, at least. Um, one of the things that we've been hearing more about is this idea of increased caregiving and housework. Um, we see that women, of course, in Canada bear the brunt of um, caregiving work and housework. And this is unpaid mm -hmm. um, work that they're spending time doing. And so, of course, with the quarantines, with the self-isolation, with the school closures, um, strain on health care facilities, this just increases for women, the caregiving and housegiving or housework that they um, do unpaid. And, um, of course, this only intensifies when somebody is ill and needs to be taken care of. You know, think about the, the kinds of food preparation you have to do, the cleaning you have to do, those kinds of things. But I think it's important to tie that then to economic stress that women experience. Um, there is a gendered poverty that happens in Canada where women, particularly single moms, um, really are at high risk of poverty, them and their children and their dependents. There's also a gender pay gap that's something we have to consider that women um, already experience that we make less mm -hmm. um, for doing the same jobs. And we are more likely on top of that to have part-time and precarious work. Mm -hmm. I think that this is very much interrelated with women's responsibilities in childcare. Um, it's the, the motherhood penalty, as people call, that women get penalized financially for being mothers and primary caregivers. Um, and I think that this is only intensified with the things like work stoppages and layoffs and right. work interruptions that are happening now with, with the coronavirus and the very important um, isolation that we're trying to do to make sure that we flatten the curve. Of course, this um, then translates to a lot of economic insecurities for children and for elders that they're taking care of. Um, yeah. So, you know, connected to that economic stress, we also have to remember 
um, that there's also this dynamic of increased gender-based violence. And this one is particularly concerning right now. There's a ton of research out there that shows that when there's disasters, when there's outbreaks, that there's a tends to be a bump in gender-based violence. Um, and I think it's important to note that this violence is always baseline too high. Every you know six days, on average, a woman is killed by her intimate partner in Canada. But um, we also have this dynamic that we see increased stressors, increased financial worries, increased you know um, changes in people's schedules, and that creates stress. And the stress then sometimes gets um, you know expressed, unfortunately, in gender-based violence in, in intimate partner and domestic spaces. And I think that, you know, it's important for us to not blame the virus for gender-based violence. We have a high rate of this, but I think that there are pandemic triggers for us to think about right now. Pair that with the services being not as available, um, and it becomes really deadly. When you were talking about the gendered experience, and I know this is, you know, certainly not to the to the extreme and the gravity of of people experiencing domestic violence but i think in my home as well um just the level of uh caregiving that happens with the children there is this disproportionate level of work that goes to her in the home so i think that that's like and obviously that is a a softer more gentle impact but it's still an impact nonetheless right and it would would that be part of that overarching gendered experience that you're saying is happening or you know, it's such an important thing that you mentioned that. And thanks for, for just acknowledging that this, the gendered expectations, they really, even when you have the best of um, intentions about changing it, the gendered expectations are bigger than us sometimes. Yes, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that's in, incredible. And I know I, I have a good intentions, but I, it's not translating to reality in this home, to be frank. Right. You know, I, I, uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I cut you off. Please go on. No, no, I... I Totally appreciate that. And um, I think that it is important to see this for a couple of reasons that um, one of the things we've been noticing is this idea of worry work um, is the way we phrased it, that women tend to in their caregiving and housework responsibilities tend to be the designated worrier in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have to think about all the things um, that maybe the non-worriers don't have to think about. And it's, uh, it creates a lot of um, mental health implications, I would say, mm-hmm. where somebody can get really anxious. And if they're already dealing with anxiety disorders, and we know that women tend to have higher rates of these things, given the fact that they experience so much terrible stuff, um, it's no surprise. Um, but, you know, this worry work is really significant. It has impacts mm-hmm. on people's um, well-being, quality of life, for sure, but then also their work. Um, when you think about, okay, if work is the way to get income and income is the way to lessen the stress on you and your family, if you are off sick because you are dealing with anxiety disorders or you're off taking care of somebody else and you're not being paid for that time, mm-hmm. um, it does have a really tangible impact on people's ability to take care of themselves and live off the poverty line. And I, I always kind of resist talking about things always in terms of economics, but I can't deny in this capitalist society that we live in how important economics is to every metric of your quality of life. So I think you're right. There's some ways that you could say that this is a softer outcome, but you can see how it's just all interrelated. So it's not really softer. It's just one step on on a larger kind of ladder towards vulnerability. Going from one 
spectrum. So which is, you know, sort of the, the, the dark realities, I, I think, of what, what is facing uh, people and women in particular, to something that I've seen emerge, which has been really sort of warmed my heart. But I'm, I just, I'm feeling this wave of women in both prominent roles. And then, like I said, if in lesser roles, what's your perspective on, on all that you're seeing and what are, what are you seeing? Um, There's tons of research again, that shows that when women see themselves reflected, women and girls see themselves reflected in leadership roles, they feel that they can do it too. You have to see it to believe it and to be it. Right. But I think you've just named something that I think is so hidden right now is that there is leadership happening in other ways that don't make the news. Um, there's people who are doing things like, oh my goodness, cleaning. Like we're recognizing this more and more. This is women's work, right? Yeah. Cleaning work, stocking grocery shelves, doing nursing, um, working in healthcare in any capacity, working in shelters and community service. This is mostly by and large women's work. This is gendered fields. These are the quote unquote pink ghettos that women have been in for a really long time. So I think it's really important for us to recognize that those those folks are leaders too. Um, And they're not necessarily going to be on the news, but this is unprecedented for them. They have to make some tough decisions too. And and they're trying to deal with a new reality and help folks who are are needing their help. And we all rely on them right now. We all rely on the cleaners um, (laughs) right now. I'm, I'm just so mindful of the folks cleaning in the TTC right now. They're at risk. And those of us who need to take public transit, that's many of us. Yeah, um, yeah we, we, our life depends on them. So thank God for them. And let's recognize them as well, that they tend to be women. They tend to be racialized. They tend to be immigrants and newcomers. They tend to be highly underpaid. Yeah. Um, so let's remember that when we come out of this, we better not be underpaying women for their work. We better not be seeing these roles as somehow not, not essential anymore. They're always going to be essential. They always have been. Um, and let's not just celebrate the leaders who are going to be on TV, tend to be you know, white women, tend to be women with a lot of um, kind of economic privilege there on TV. Let's remember the women who are doing this work and are high risk, undercompensated, underprotected, and then their families and communities are now at greater risk because they are also going to be bringing um, risk with them. In in your estimation, as we are going through it and as we come out of it, how do people make sure that they keep themselves informed about the essential work that's going on? I think it's going to really, I hope, shift our mentalities, um, our collective mentalities, not just individual, um, where we are thinking about people first. And we're thinking about diverse people, people who are at risk. Really, it will take some diligence, some continued diligence, um, where perhaps we are not that diligent um, in thinking about those hidden stories, those hidden impacts, the folks that we'd rather look away from um, to remember that they are important too. And just like we have this collective sense that we're all in it together, we have to continue feeling that way. It's we're all into this together. Fantastic, Andrea. Thank you so much. I wanted to ask you just finally, how can people get involved? Can they, is it best way to get uh, to your website and educate themselves? Um, I know you have an Instagram page. What's, what's the best way to get in touch and stay informed? Yeah, I would definitely ask everybody to please consider uh, going to our website, canadianwomen.org, 
you can, um, of course, follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram. I'd also ask folks, you know, I know a lot of people are dealing with a lot of economic stress right now. So if you are able to give and if you're interested in giving, please give to our uh, COVID-19 response fund. The Canadian Women's Foundation launched this soon after the pandemic really kind of changed our country. Um, and we wanted to do this because we wanted to make sure that services and supports still reach the most vulnerable women and girls and that services for those vulnerable women and girls don't just um, lose all funding and lose all support. And uh, it's really dire right now on the grassroots level, the people that we fund and we support across the country. So I'd encourage you, if you want to give towards gender impacts, this is the place to give. Um, give to our Tireless Together Fund. That's the name of it. If you go to our website, you'll see it right there. Um, and yeah, please be in touch because we need you. The Unseen. Indigenous Peoples. Indigenous people account for roughly 5% of the global population. They account for 15% of those in extreme poverty. They are three times as likely to be living in extreme poverty and are more likely to suffer the negative outcomes of infectious diseases. Not only do they have higher rates of pre-existing conditions, but the hospitals, when accessible, are less equipped. Women, the gendered experience. More than 1.5 million women in Canada live on a low income. Women are at an increased risk of gender-based violence during extended isolation. A pandemic increases the burden of caregiving and housework. African Americans. In the U.S., the death rate due to COVID-19 has been disproportionately higher in Black communities due to systemic barriers. The underprivileged. Our reliance on digital resources ranging from diversionary entertainment to education to medical updates puts those from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds in compromising positions. On one end, it's a question of access to technology, but on another, access to space, literally. Those in poorer neighborhoods or nations can live in homes where social distancing is quite literally impossible. Do you see them yet? And now, part two, the original conversation I had with Andrea Gunrach. Let's have a listen. Let me start there. Where's your, what's your background, like, uh, education-wise? So I have a BA in sociology and criminology, and I have a master's in criminology. I've always been interested in the law, how um, legal rights may or may not actually translate to lived rights. Um, but I also loved critical race theory, this idea of looking how racialization works, how race power plays out, who is seen as normal, who is seen as other, and what that means. So that's always been really interesting to me. And I love looking at things like uh, Caribbean communities, how Caribbean communities live out their rights or lack thereof. I've been really interested in things like how we can even change laws, laws around difficult things like gender-based violence has been a real yeah, important piece wow. to me. Um, so that's kind of my background. I got into community work around that. I worked at a, a number of organizations that um, did this kind of work in one way or another. And it's, it just feels like a natural progression to come to the Canadian Women's Foundation and look at that at a national scale. 
there's a part of me that uh, struggles with optimism um, mm. and having uh, a the right energy to come uh, at these uh, types of topics of justice, injustice. Where do you find the energy uh, to have a, what, what appears to be a really positive outlook? It is heavy. And um, a lot of people, I would say, get into this and do burn out because of the heaviness and um, the sadness. I think where I get my energy from is that I have the chance to give and do something about it and say something about it and use my voice and use my skills towards that. Um, I feel is just so joyful in and of itself. That's where I try to keep it. And um, I know, I know the dynamics are heavy and sad. I get sad sometimes too. I think they would, they would love, they, the patriarchy would love um, for us to be upset. The racism would love for us to be sad and, yeah. and feel broken by it. And I must say it's uh, actually fun to live in joy and defy all the things you're supposed to feel. It's so fun that I prioritize having fun as much as possible. So maybe that's the key is just having a lot of fun and making sure that you keep positive people in your life so yeah. that you can feel energized. I'm going to maybe turn the page to the, the non-traditional sort of work, if you do. Yeah, if sure. You, if, if we could. Can you tell me about The Lost Sister? I know that's the latest book mm -hmm. you've written. Mm -hmm. And what, in, like, what drove you to write mm -hmm. that book? Thanks for asking. Uh, the Lost Sister was a real passion project for me. What drove it was my friend Garnet Smith, who uh, I knew for many, many years. Um, and he grew up in a place called the Nova Scotia Home for Colored Children. Um, it's in Nova Scotia, clearly. Um, and it was uh, something that was built in the 1920s. Uh, they built it, uh, members of the black community in that um, area that it was in, built it because the child welfare systems didn't support black children. Um, so there were no orphanages at the time that black children could access. White orphanages were the norm and poor houses at the time. That was also a thing. And they would turn black children away, seeing that they didn't have the capacity to help them. So the Nova Scotia Home for Colored Children was built in this context of segregation. And it was a place where black children who needed support would go to. The issue was, of course, it was complicated. Um, the Nova Scotia government would apprehend black children, bring them to the Nova Scotia home, fund them at less than half the rate that they were funding white children in other orphanages and, and homes and institutions. So the Nova Scotia home for colored children was always chronically underfunded. The children were not given what they deserved and what their white counterparts were given. Of course, then they were subject to a great deal of abuse because the home was underfunded. So my friend Garnet experienced this. He lived in the home in the 1940s, and he experienced every abuse that you could think of. He experienced deprivation, hunger, forced labor. He did not learn how to read when he was in the home. And he didn't know that he had access to a social worker, again, assigned by the Nova Scotia government, but did not um, actually do their work to make sure the children were well taken care of in this home. Mm -hmm. So this was allowed to happen in a context of anti-black racism and segregation in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia yeah. He was there for the vast majority of his childhood. He left when he was 18. Um, his siblings were there as well too. Some of his siblings were with him and they didn't know even why they were apprehended. 
when they got older, they looked into it a little bit more and it probably happened because they were poor, not because there was no other way to take care yeah, of them. because there was. There, there was. was. There was, yeah. and they weren't getting the money, them in the family context, and they certainly didn't get it in the home context. So that story, he shared it with me. He shared all kinds of documents. He was involved in a group that was doing a class action suit against yeah. the government of Nova Scotia and as well the Nova Scotia home itself. And um, he shared these things with me, and he asked, you know, would you use your skills in writing to do something about this? And, of course, I was so honored that he would even ask and that he would even share a story with me. So I was excited to do something, but I didn't want to repeat his story. Um, so for me, it was really important to take the story, fictionalize it, because yeah. it wasn't only him who experienced that. Other right. people experienced it. And create a story, a compelling story that people can understand this history. And it's a hidden history. People in Nova Scotia might know about it, but I feel that people outside of Nova Scotia, we don't know about that. We know about things like uh, residential schools. We know about some areas of child protection and how that hasn't worked out, how that system has been quite broken province to province and territory to territory. But we don't know about this particular institution in an area where you know, there's a black history here and there's a history of segregation and racism that's very particular to that area. So I really wanted to write this book to be able to speak to that history, to speak and honor my friend's story, and also speak to a larger narrative of the way that children are treated. That's a long answer. No, no, that's, <laughs> and that's the, that's the answer I was looking for. I didn't expect it to be a, a, a quick one, because I wanted to. Um, it ended up that the, the government ended up settling that's right. for, for that. So that's right. that, that happened. Um, a settling and an apology. Yeah, ex- oh, sorry. Yes, that's right, yes, that's, I, right. I, that's right. Which is... So, which, which is huge. huge. Yeah, it's really huge. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. Shedding light on these things is, is actually is part of what you were talking about before, Absolutely. but you make it accessible, right? Like you unearth it and you give power to the things that are working against it. That's right. By, by doing that. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Um, I'm assuming that that is one of the most rewarding outcome, uh, outcomes and impacts of writing the book. Absolutely. When I, somebody comes to me and said, I read the book, I learned something that I didn't even know anything about. I was shocked and I was surprised and I didn't know this was the reality. Uh, that's really super rewarding. And it's super rewarding for people to say, I didn't know um, that kids went through that. And it's so At sad. All. Yeah. I, my first exposure to that actually was just in doing research for this. So there you go. To, to be honest with you and, and then yeah. I just sort of followed the breadcrumbs and I was like, I didn't know about that at right. all. So, right. Yeah, it is right. a hidden history yeah. and it's a shame that it's a hidden history. But I must say, there are strong voices of survivors of the home who have been just pushing the way. They're the ones who push for the right, class yeah. action suit. They're the ones who push for, for the sure. apology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now they've pushed for um, a change in the way the child welfare system works in the Nova Scotia province. And it's really a fascinating and fantastic model that prioritizes families, prioritizes children's needs, um, makes sure that the right hand knows what the left hand is doing which is part of the problem of this history, um, and make sure that anti-black racism in particular is addressed because we know that black youth are the ones who are targeted most and black communities are targeted most in Canada for this these systems as well as indigenous youth and indigenous families. Right. But those are where we see highly disproportionate numbers of people getting placed into care and then not getting the outcomes, not getting the tool they need to grow up. To get out of that. To get out of the system and not be homeless and be able to have a, a life 
to be able to feel like I, I belong and I'm loved. And I'm um, contributing every And I'm contributing every, everything. When did you know you could write? Oh, that's a great question. In my 20s is when I learned I could write. Um, and I think it was when I was doing essays in university. Very lucky to be able to go to university and have that opportunity. And I realized I could write an essay, but I hated doing tests. <laughs> so I, I was so thankful when it was an essay as opposed to a test. And I saw people complaining when it was the other way around. They were like, at least with a test, I could just get it over with. But an essay, you know, it's going to take me days. And I was, like, excited when it was an essay because I was like, oh, gosh, I get the time to actually write the thing and reread the thing and right. say it the way I want to. Then I realized I, I can actually write. Um, and that kind of changed the course of where I decided I wanted to kind of put my attentions, what kind of career I wanted to have. Um, at, at the time, I was thinking, should I be a lawyer? You know, you know, what, what am I going to do with this degree that I'm, I'm going for? I'm, I love law, and, but I don't want to be a lawyer. It really was when I realized I could write. That's when I was like communications. And that's when I was like, okay, I can, I can use this skill to speak better and to talk to people better and to write books and do fun stuff like stories, but also do serious stuff like yeah. papers. And um, yeah, that really helped me a lot. So I'm always curious when I, when I run into people like yourselves who are amazing writers, uh, but am, amazing spe speakers as well, where, where are you at home? Mm. That's a great question. I feel like I'm most at home when I'm writing and totally silent, but I have more fun when I'm talking. <laughs> as you can see, I like to talk. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. I think I would have answered that differently two years ago. Today, I would answer it student. Is it more important for men to celebrate Women's Day or women to celebrate or women to celebrate Women's Day? That's a great question. I think that it's important for all genders to celebrate. That's that's the <laughs> that's the correct answer. Isn't it? Yeah, all genders. Um, but you know what? I'd love to see an International Women's Day where men are stepping up and celebrating by committing in their own spheres of influence to do something for women. Imagine that this is recorded off. Nobody's listening. Nobody's looking. It's your guilty pleasure. Confessions. Mm. Um, Music. Mm. Cheesy music. Okay, I was going to say that. Doesn't that doesn't... No, no. Cheesy music. So, like, again, in, for the purposes of the public, I listen to... Very... Highly... <laughs> conscious... Sophisticated... Sophisticated... <laughs> jazz... Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm just joking around, I'm In the movie about Andrea, who plays you? Ooh. Okay, this is going to sound weird, but 
feel like like a boy, <laughs> some kind of boy, like Daniel Radcliffe, when when he was young and Harry Potter just started. I feel like that would actually be the perfect age. There's no brown boys that I can think of who would be able to play. Maybe Dev Patel, you know that guy, but he's now like old. Um, I feel like I'm a young boy, nine-year-old boy. You don't, you don't look like a nine-year-old boy. I feel like my mind sometimes, I act like a nine-year-old boy. Like if I had a counselor. Um, last question is, what's the name of the movie? Hmm. Hmm. Arrested Development. And that's me. That's awesome. Yeah, Arrested Development. I know there's already a show named that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm we'd have to figure, we'd have to work yeah, on it. So there you have it. The conversation continues. I'd like to thank everyone who's participated in today's show, be they behind the scenes or on the mic. Part of our show was recorded and produced at Corner Studios with the assistance of our producer, John Kitt. Music for this episode was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by Joachim Nortebert and Andy Ninval. If you like what you've heard, there's more. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter under our handle, Proud54. Remember, you can find us wherever you do your listening. iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and that's just a few of them. Listen, like, share. Until we meet again, thanks for listening.